Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Virginie Simonot-Gilbert, a graduate student at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking primarily about her research in animal ethics and moral agency. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Virginie, you can find her email address listed on her website, www.virginiesimonogilbert.com, which we've linked to in the episode description. You can also read more about her research on her website, and Virginie also recommends to anyone interested in animal ethics the Animal Turn podcast, which was created by researchers at the Apple Center at Queen's University. Virginie Simonogilbert, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thanks for having me. So, how did you become interested in philosophy? I became interested in philosophy because of animal ethics. So I should say that I grew up with animals. I did also horseback riding on a weekly basis. When I was young, I had intuitions about the wrongness of eating meat pretty early in life. I became a vegetarian when I was 15. So it was a a personal interest pretty early in life. And it became a research interest in college. So when I started to study philosophy... Because we go to college before going to university in Quebec and we study philosophy in college. At that time, it became very clear in my mind that I wanted to study philosophy in university because of my growing interest in animal ethics and ethics at large. So I did a three-year BA in philosophy at the University of Montreal or Université de Montréal, as we say officially in French. You mentioned going to college before university in Quebec. I'm right in thinking that in Quebec, one actually finishes college at a slightly later age than Kyle and I would have experienced in the UK. I think you finish at maybe the age of 19 or 20, is that right? And then only begin university at that age? Yes, exactly. So in Quebec, we do five years of high school and then we go to college or cégep in French. And colleges are really part of the higher education system. And in college, you can study a pre-university program for two years or you can do a three-year technical program and then work after or also go to university if you want to. And uh, what's interesting about college in Quebec is that we have three courses of philosophy that are mandatory for everyone who goes to college. So if you're a nurse, a high school teacher, a lawyer, you you did philosophy courses at some point in your in your life, which is, I think, very interesting as a society choice, as a social choice. I love the idea of philosophy being taught to everybody other than just the philosophy students. What kind of topics were they taught as part of those general philosophy courses in Quebec? Actually, in college, we have what we call the general training. It's a set of courses that everyone has to pass to have their college diploma. And the general training includes four courses of French and Quebecois literature, three courses of philosophy, three courses of English, and three courses of sports. The first course in philosophy is named Philosophy and Rationality. It's on the birth of uh, Western philosophy, so basically on Greek philosophy. The second one is called The Human Being. And the third one is called Ethics and Politics. So we cover a very large range of authors and themes. So... You're now studying at the University of Oxford with Lewis and I doing a DPhil in philosophy, but you had the distinction of receiving a Rhodes Scholarship. So what did the application process for the Rhodes Scholarship look like? Actually, it's a very heavy application process. 
once you choose to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship, you have to prepare different documents like a statement, uh, which is more personal than academic. So it's mostly a personal statement on your values and your projects and less on your good grades and what you did in university. Uh, you have to prepare a CV and you have to find six letters of reference from both academic and non-academic referees. And then you're invited to a cocktail and an interview and uh, you'll have a 45-minute interview on average. So you mentioned that part of the process is that they assess your values. I think that sounds really interesting. So what sort of things that would they assess with that? So I guess they're just asking questions during the interview about your uh, life choices. They want to see how you you defend your own opinions and uh, just your research interests at large. So for instance, I was asked questions about the priority that should be given to human beings instead of animals, for instance, or how exactly animal ethics is relevant as a field of moral philosophy. So it's very basic questions, but they really want to see if you can defend them and provide justifications for your projects and your academic interests. It's obviously quite a prestigious scholarship, the Rhodes Scholarship. So I would like to ask what you think it might have been in your application that made it so competitive as to be awarded such a prestigious scholarship as the Rhodes Scholarship? Or or to put it another way, maybe, is there any advice that you would give to prospective students who are applying to those kinds of scholarships to make their application stand out from the crowd? I guess one advice would be to just read your CV and ask yourself questions about your life choices and why getting involved with a, a very precise organization made sense for you at that time. So just reflect on your life and your diverse projects. And I guess in my case, it was so clear that I was interested in animal ethics. And especially when I was a, a child, everything made sense for me. So I guess reflecting on animal ethics and my relationship with non-human animals kind of helped in making my application competitive. So that would be my advice. And the research that you're now doing for your DPhil is obviously following on from that train. It's looking at animal ethics in relation to moral agency. So I'd like to begin by asking how it is that you understand moral agency. When we look at typical human beings, like adult human beings, um, who are cases of full-fledged moral agency. Moral agents are individuals who have more sophisticated moral capacities, like moral emotions, reasoning, reflective self-control, understanding of moral facts and principles. And some of these capacities make them morally responsible as well. So for instance, uh, the capacity for self-control and moral understanding, for instance. This is really the definition of full-fledged moral agents, but moral capacities like reasoning and understanding come in different degrees of sophistication. So my goal in my thesis is to defend a more gradualist and multifaceted view of moral agency and to try to see where animals fit on the spectrum of moral agency. And another goal is to tease apart the concepts of moral agency and moral responsibility and see if we can define some animals as moral agents, but without moral responsibility, perhaps like toddlers and very young children who show capacities for empathy starting uh, from a very young age. That's fascinating. I suppose, uh, you know, you mentioned that we traditionally think of human beings and uh, maybe even toddlers uh, to some extent as being moral agents. So with respect to animals, though, 
what sort of evidence is there that like non-human animals meet the conditions for moral agency? I guess we have evidence uh, mostly on social mammals. So basically great apes, monkeys, dolphins, whales, elephants, wolves, coyotes, foxes, foxes, dogs, rats, and bats are the animals that are the most studied uh, regarding the debate on moral agency. And basically the evidence that we have is focused on empathy rather than responsiveness to norms or responsiveness to moral reasons. Um, so basically in lab settings, for instance, scientists uh, study how animals react when they see some conspecifics who are in pain or distressed. So we have studies uh, in which rats had to free other rats who were trapped in a cage, or we have a study on capuchin monkeys who had to cause electric shocks to other monkeys to have food. So scientists wanted to see how monkeys would react to the suffering of other monkeys. And a monkey refused to eat for 12 days, which is very impressive. Impressive, And we also have a couple of studies on fairness and fair play, so less related to empathy, but also to norms and how animals can be sensitive to norms and how they react to like the unequal sharing of resources or breaking of play rules and so on. Given that evidence that some non-human animals might meet some of the conditions for moral agency, but might not be, as you say, a fully fledged moral agent. Now, you mentioned that that might move us to refer to some non-human animals as maybe a partial moral agent in a way that we maybe wouldn't hold them morally responsible. Now, what conditions would a non-human animal have to meet at which we start to hold them actually morally responsible for their actions and is it plausible that there may be non-human animals who do meet those conditions to be held morally responsible? I guess in the philosophical literature, two capacities have been proposed to explain how exactly a moral agent becomes morally responsible. And these are moral understandings, so basically understanding of moral facts, moral principles, also the consequences of our actions, and also a capacity for a reflective self-control or a form of normative self-government in the Kantian sense. So these are the two capacities. And some people challenge the view that reflective self-control is relevant for moral responsibility. So there are internal debates regarding the conditions. But I guess very few non-human animals would satisfy these conditions. Perhaps some great apes to some extent, or maybe like dolphins and whales, but I guess it depends on the extent or the scope of their understanding of situations. And we don't have strong evidence on their moral capacities to really claim that they are morally responsible. And if they are morally responsible, I guess it would be in a very limited way, maybe like very young children, maybe like a three-year-old or a four-year-old children. So in a, in a way that is not like these, the same moral responsibility as adult human beings. I guess to take it in a different direction, it's clear that it's in animals' interests for us to treat them as like moral patients. But I guess one question that could arise is, you know, in what sense is it in an animal's interest that we recognize and treat them as moral agents like the ways that we do with other human beings? I think that defining animals as moral patients has been extremely helpful in a lot of ways because philosophers who work in animal ethics have succeeded, I think, in showing that you don't need to have complex moral capacities to have interests that are morally significant 
or to have moral rights. But I think defining animals merely as moral patients comes with conceptual costs. So for instance, I think it encourages a way of seeing animals as merely passive beings who are kind of like the victims or benefiters of our actions and who can't make decisions for themselves. I think also that focusing attention on the moral capacities of animals widens our understanding of the ways in which we can wrong non-human animals, especially farm animals. So we can wrong them not only by causing them physical pain or psychological distress, but also by preventing them from developing moral capacities, which we could take as an essential component of a good life if we have a form of Aristotelian theory in animal ethics, kind of like Martha Nussbaum's theory of capabilities. And I think the moral patiency paradigm may not be sufficient to take into account the diverse diverse ways in which we can wrong non-human animals. Obviously, we've been talking about animal ethics on a pretty high philosophical level, you know, discussing the various kinds of conceptions of moral agency and trying to pick things apart in a, you know, let's say, relatively rigorous way. But you also engage in a lot of public philosophy. And so I suppose my question is, how does your style and your method of writing change when you're writing to generate a public impact with your philosophy? I guess in my case, I really like examples, both in philosophy, but also for books that are more for a public audience. So I guess in the style of writing, it doesn't change that much in regard to examples that I use. I guess I'm using examples that are more familiar to people and more catchy because it just makes, they just make the book maybe more interesting for readers. But I guess I'm not taking for granted that people know every philosophical concept. So even concepts that, that we find pretty basic in philosophy, uh, I just want to make sure that I defined every concept, even basic ones for philosophers. And the goal is just to make sure that everyone is on board, on board and understands what you're saying. So, and including a lexicon may be a good idea. So basically, you're just becoming clearer in terms of definitions when you're writing for a public audience. You alluded at the beginning of your answer there to the books you had written as part of your public philosophy. I believe you had started the DFIL actually having written two books on animal ethics for a public audience. So I'd be really interested to know how that came about. Did it come about by a process of you writing a chapter or maybe even a whole manuscript and sending it out to publishing companies to see if they would be interested in publishing it? Or was it by commission or was it by some other means? Yeah, I was commissioned to write books. Uh, so I'm afraid I don't have specific advice to give to philosophers who would like to submit manuscripts for, for more general editors and, and publishers. So yeah, I was commissioned to write a book on the history of the Montreal SPCA. And I was also commissioned to write a book on uh, the animal protection movement at large uh, because there was a contract that al already existed with a publisher and I kind of, I was given the contract so I was commissioned to write these two books. So I guess on a, on a final note, my question for you is, how big a role do you think philosophers can play in advancing the animal rights or animal protection movement, as you referred to it earlier? I guess there are several things that philosophers can do. They can publish books or pieces for a public audience, uh, for instance, on ethical problems or public issues surrounding the way we treat non-human animals, for instance, uh, for instance regarding uh, welfare laws. 
Second, I think that when philosophers publish for a public audience, they are often seen as a form of reference by people who work in the media and by the public. So you'll get interview requests, and this really enables philosophers to influence the public opinion and to help people see the moral consequences of their choices. And also by publishing for a public audience and by giving interviews, I think philosophers can give a form of intellectual or theoretical credibility to the movement, a form of theoretical basis that really grounds the political movement. Virginie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.